If you have your Bibles, look with me to Mark chapter 10, and we're going to read verses uh, 17 through 22, and I'm going to preach about the attitude of a true believer. Before we get into that, let me just say next Sunday, I hope you'll be here. I think you'll want to be here. I'm going to preach on heaven, and I always love doing that. Uh, it's just one of those messages that leaves you feeling great, and so I hope you'll come and be with us as we think about heaven uh, next Sunday morning. And while you're thinking about that, next Sunday is Friend Day. We're going to invite our friends this week. We've had an emphasis every week for the last four weeks, and this coming week, the emphasis is on calling a friend, phoning a friend, and asking them to come to be with you. That can be a family member, a neighbor, somebody you work with, but just Try to bring someone with you to church next week. Uh, I don't have a lot of friends in this area that I, I know, you know, other than you folk who are already coming here. And so uh, I, it's going to be hard for me, but I'm going to try to bring a friend next week as well. So I hope you'll get on the phone and call some folk, and we'll have a good crowd next week as we come to think about heaven. I want to talk this morning about the attitude of a true believer. And uh, let me tell you what I mean by that. I'm thinking about when a person comes to know Christ, what does their attitude regarding the gospel have to be in order for them to truly believe on the Lord Jesus Christ? I see folks who have this notion in mind, well, you know what? This is just totally on me, and so I can understand the gospels. I hear the gospels. I kind of believe them. I believe there was a Jesus. I believe he came and he died on the cross and he arose from the dead. Don't have any problem with that. And I kind of believe that there's life after death. Not altogether sure, but I kind of think there is. But you know, right now I'm in the middle of life and I'm having a great time. And I'm just not ready to settle down and become a believer. So what I'm going to do is this. I'm going to file all that stuff away in the back of my mind. And then when I get closer to the end, when I get out of that time where I'm going to sow my wild oats and, and I'm ready to settle down, kind of, I've got kids and grandkids maybe, and maybe I'm even near death, I'll just at that point, when it's more convenient and more in keeping with what I want to do in my life, I'll give my life to Jesus, but I'm not ready to do it today. I'm just going to put all that stuff on the back burner. And they kind of have this notion, I can just come to Christ anytime I jolly well feel like coming to Christ. So, man, if they tell me i got cancer and i got too much to live, that'll be a good time to get saved, right? I want you to know, I think there are folk who genuinely, genuinely, I'm not just saying this, genuinely come to Christ in the last moments of their life, on their deathbed. They come to the Lord Jesus, and they're sincerely saved. But I want to tell you something. I've got a problem with a person who knows about Jesus all their life and thinks, you know, I can just put this off until it's a convenient time. I don't think that's the kind of attitude someone has who genuinely trust Jesus. And I want to show you that. It's not a matter of what I think, what my feelings are, what my opinion is. It's a matter of what the Scripture tells us. And so I'm going to show you two stories this morning. One of these stories, everybody, virtually everybody here, unless you've not had a chance to read the Scripture much, virtually everybody here knows this one story, the story we're going to begin with. The second story is just a single verse. It's a story wrapped up in just one verse. It's a parable that Jesus gives. And to be honest with you, it's one of those parables that preachers often overlook. We don't often turn to that and say, I'm going to preach a whole message on this. We usually just throw it in at uh, some point in a sermon, okay? But this morning, I want you to know, it's the real focus of our message today. So go with me to Mark chapter 10, and let's begin our reading in verse 17. And I'm just going to read this story 
and then make some comments, and then we'll look at that other one, and uh, we'll be done. Look with me to verse 17. As he, speaking of Jesus, was setting out on a journey, a man ran up and knelt down before him and asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Now, you may or may not know this story right off the get-go. If you look down at the heading above where we just read, probably your Bible has something like this, the rich young ruler. And you don't read that he's a ruler in this particular passage, but if you look at all the synoptic gospels, you'll find that one gospel writer says he was a ruler, and then Luke says he had great wealth, and here we're going to see he had great possessions as well. So here's what we know about this guy right out of the gate. He's a young fella. He's a guy who's a ruler, which means he enjoyed a certain fair amount of popularity. He has some status in the community, no doubt. And he's a guy who's got a lot of money. So when you think of all those things and you picture this guy come running up to Jesus, here's Jesus and his disciples, and they're going on this journey and right in the middle of their leaving to go on this journey, this guy comes running up out of the crowd and he just kneels right there at Jesus' feet and he looks up and he says, what must I do to inherit eternal life? You got to kind of say, man, didn't see that coming. Uh, It's not the kind of person you typically even read about in the Gospels who comes running up to Jesus and kneels and asks such a question, especially as directly as this man asked it. You find on another occasion, a guy by the name of Jairus, he's a big shot. He's the leader of the synagogue in Capernaum. He comes up, he runs, he kneels, does the same thing. But you find out there he's an older guy who has a daughter who's at death's door. And so he's, ah, I get it. I understand understand why he'd come and beg Jesus for a miracle. We see of others who come, and they ask Jesus, but always they got in the back of their mind, there's something they need. This man's not asking for any kind of physical miracle. He's not asking for any kind of help in the physical realm. He's got that covered. You understand? He doesn't need financial help. He doesn't need a physical miracle. He doesn't need anything from anybody else. He's wanting spiritual help. So it makes it all the more unusual. And look at the question he asked Jesus. Master, tell me, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Well, that's a great question, right? Can I tell you, for years and years and years, in fact, even to this day, But especially when I pastored, every day I'd pray when I get in my office, I'd begin the day and I'd ask the Lord, I'd look on my calendar and say, Lord, would you help me with this and this and this? And I'd always say, Lord, would you lead somebody here today or just right off the streets? They'll just pass by our buildings and they'll just see our sign out front and they'll just come in here and they'll just want to know, how can they be saved? Would you just lead somebody to me today who's looking to know Christ? I'm sure lots of you in this room have prayed that kind of prayer as well. Lord, Just lead me to somebody who's looking to be saved. I want to tell you, in the evangelical world, this guy lobs Jesus a softball, right? I mean, it's the evangelical softball of the year. Could you tell me, son of God, who better? Could you tell me, how could I inherit the kingdom of God? What can I do? So you know what you would expect, don't you? that Jesus just kind of goes in the wind up and all right, and pow, 
knocks it right out of the stadium. That's what you would anticipate. But that's not what Jesus does. I mean, I'd have been on him, to be honest, like ugly on an ape. If he'd have said that to me, I'd have just jumped in, gone right to the Roman road, or I'm not going to get him lost again because he already knows he's lost. He wants to be saved. He wouldn't have come to me unless he knew something was lacking in his life. He would have never raised that kind of question. So I'm just going to go jump right in and say, here's how you can come to know God. But that's not what Jesus does. i got to be honest with you. If you didn't already read this story, you'd never guess what he says. Look at Jesus' response, if you will, to that question. Verse 18. Why do you call me good? Why? I mean, if I'd been one of his disciples and I'd been standing there and I'd heard that, I mean, it's what we've been looking for all the time. Somebody to come and they want to have their hearts right and they want to go to heaven. They want to inherit the kingdom of God. And he says, good Good teacher, good master. It's not an insult. It's a good thing, right? And Jesus says, well, now, tell me. Why do you call me good? I'd be going, huh, what? What are you doing, Jesus? Don't, don't let him get away. I mean, give him the gospel. And Jesus says, why do you call me good? Can I tell you? It was a wonderful thing to say because Jesus knew what's going on in this guy's mind and in his heart and how he's thinking. Did he think that Jesus was God? Absolutely not. There's not a question in my mind. He believed that this man, Jesus, was God. He thought just what he said. He was a good teacher. He was a good man. And Jesus wants to capitalize on that and send him a message about what's going on in his own life, in the man's life. We all use that expression, don't we? We say, he's a good guy. She's a good guy. You go to a funeral, you always hear the preacher say, he was a good man. She was a good woman. And they're not lying about that. They mean that compared to a lot of folk, they're really a good, good, good person. Or even if you look at them individually, he treated his family well, she treated her family well. They were good citizens. They were good members of First Baptist Church. They're good people. But notice what Jesus says in response to that. Why do you call me good, Jesus asked him. No one is good but one, and that is God. No one is good but God. Now you may be wondering, well, why did Jesus pick that apart? Why did Jesus make a point of that? Because he knows what this guy's thinking, not about him, Jesus, but about himself. When he calls Jesus good, he's not saying you're good as in perfect as in God. He's saying you're good as in I'm good. You're good. You're good. We're all pretty good. We have our good moments. But Jesus is going to show this man something about himself from this point going forward that he's not prepared to see, and I don't know that he ever saw. I don't know that he got it, to be honest. I think he walked off, and he never understood what Jesus was saying. Here's the point Jesus is making. Look at what he says next. You know the commandments. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Do not defraud. Honor your father and your mother. Well, you know what he's done? Jesus has now skipped to the Ten Commandments. He's gone to Exodus. 
chapter 20 and verse 12 and following. And he cited six of the Ten Commandments. And get this now, these six he cited are the six that theologians call commandments on the horizontal plane. He's omitted the first four, which are commandments on the vertical plane. And by vertical plane, I mean this. They're the ones that relate to our relationship with God. Keep the Sabbath day and keep it holy. He says, worship the Lord thy God, and him only shalt thou serve. Don't have any graven image. He skipped all those. And he's gone to these that are on the horizontal plane that deal with man's relationship with other men. And so Jesus says, well, you call me good? There's no one good but God. You know what you need to do. You need to keep the Ten Commandments. And he says, how do you relate to men? Is that okay? Have you been keeping those about, about how you relate to men? And you know what the man says? Look at his response. The man says, teacher, I have kept all these from my youth. Well, yes, master. Of course, I'm a good Jewish boy. I've, I've maintained all these commandments. Now, I want to just show you something. Most of us in this room, if you say to them, say to folk, you've been keeping the Ten Commandments? What do you think? We think to ourselves. Well, sure, yeah, right, right. But have you? Have you? You ever gossiped? Yeah, you broke that one. Ever lied? Ever failed to report some cash you got on your income tax? Nobody knew about? Ever hurt somebody? Ever stole anything? And on and on and on you go. You see, we think, well, if I just don't break it all the time, I'm not guilty of breaking it. But you know what James says? James says if you break it in one point, you're guilty of breaking it all. You get that? If you're guilty at one point, you're guilty of breaking all of them. And Jesus knew, and that's the reason he makes such a big deal about this thing of being good. Buddy, you're delusional. You're not as good as you think you are, right? And none of us are. We convince ourselves, try to convince ourselves that we really are great, good people, and we just, we're not that bad. I mean, I'm not... I'm not the worst guy in the world, and so I'm pretty good, right? Jesus, no, truth is, you're not. You're a sinner, just like everybody else. And so you're not that good. Well, Jesus is going to tell him what he needs to do. Look at what he tells him he needs to do. Look at the very next verse. This is going to shock some of you. Then looking at him, Jesus loved him. He's not angry with him. He's not put out with him. He loves him. You lack one thing. Go sell all you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure. Look at that word. Treasure. I want you just to remember it for a minute. You will have treasure in heaven. Then come follow me. Now, this guy wants eternal life. He wants eternal life. You know why he's coming to Jesus? Because he knows he doesn't have it. 
He knows deep in his heart when he looks at his life, he's got a lot of stuff. He's got material things. He's got popularity. He's got status. He's got the respect of the community. But what I don't have is God. And I believe this all of my heart. God has given us an ability when we'll get real honest with ourselves and stop being delusional and look inward. We know if we're right with God or not. Doesn't matter what our parents think, what our pastor thinks, what our deacons think, what our wife or husband thinks. We know if we're really right with God. I think most every one of you, if not every one of you right now under the sound of my voice, you know today, regardless of what anybody else in this room thinks, you know whether or not you are really right with God, whether or not you're really ready to die and stand before God in judgment this very moment. And that young man took inventory of his life, and even though he says, I'm keeping all these commandments, and I want you to know, I think he is a moral guy. And I think for the most part, he did keep all those commandments. I'm not saying he, you know, he was a rotten sinner. I'm just saying he was a sinner. But I believe this, when he looked at his life, he knew this, there's something missing or he would never have come and knelt before Jesus and said, tell me, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And I want to tell you, that's where some of you in this room today, even though your name's on the roll of this church, that's where you are. If you're perfectly honest, you know that's why, because I'm not ready to meet God. When I was a young man living in Anderson, another young guy who was my age at that time and good friend, he went on to be a pastor of church here in South Carolina, a large church, and just a good, good guy. But he looked at me one day where we were in a locker room, and he said, Ralph, do you think we're ready to meet God? And it shocked me when he said And I turned to him, and I said, I know I'm not. I was in church every Sunday. I'd been baptized. My name was on the roll. I was a leader among the youth. And I knew I wasn't ready to meet God. I knew I'm not right with God. And I just knew that. Innately, I knew that. And I think this young man, he knows that I'm not right with God. So Jesus wants him to see where he really, but he don't think he's that bad. He's just not right with God. So Jesus says, here's what I want you to do. If you want to be right with me, go sell everything, every, every last thing, and give it to the poor and come take up the cross and follow me, and you will find treasure in heaven. The young man's thinking to himself, I got treasure right now. I got lots of treasure. I'm not hurting for money. And this is what I know. And that thing you talk about, eternal life, that I've asked you about, I'm wanting to hedge my bets in case it really is so, but I'm not certain it's so. And you see, that's the problem with some of us in this room again today. We're never going to say that out loud in church. We're just all going to say, yeah, we believe that the heaven's out there after this life is over. But the truth of the matter is, we're not so sure. And that's why we hedge our bets by making sure we keep holding on to this life. Because we know this life. I know what I got here. I can see my car. I can see my house. I can see my family. I can see my relationships with my friends. I can see my money, my money in the bank account, and I can breathe. I'm, I'm alive now. But once I breathe my last and the doctor says he's dead, and they put me in the cat. I don't know if I'm going to live then or not. I hope so. I think so. Maybe so. But that's uncertain. So Jesus wanted to point out how uncertain it is to him. And he says, here's what you do. You go sell everything you have and come take up the cross. And you'll find treasure in heaven. And you follow me. And you'll get eternal life. Now, was he going to get eternal life because he sold what he had? No. 
because it doesn't come to us by works. But by his selling everything, he was indicating Jesus, I have complete confidence in you and in God, and I believe there's life after death, and I want that. And that was the importance of his selling everything. Now, I want to tell you, I've heard some preachers and lay people get this all mixed up and all wrong. I've heard preachers even say, well, you see, he really didn't have to sell everything. Jesus just wanted to see if he was willing to sell everything. There's not a shred of evidence to hold to that idea. I believe Jesus meant go sell everything and come take up the cross and follow me and you'll have life in heaven. And I'm going to show you why I believe that because of what Jesus said on yet another occasion. Before we see that, though, look at the man's reaction. Look at verse 22. But he was stunned at this demand. I love how the Holman translates that. I don't know what your translation says, but the Holman says, but he was stunned at that demand. You know what it is to be stunned, right? You're not anticipating something. It takes you back. It takes your breath away. You just, what? I mean, usually when we're stunned, what? We're stunned by news. We're stunned by something that happens in our life. It's not what we thought was going to happen. This young man, what was he thinking when he said, Tell me, how can I have eternal life? I'll tell you what I think he was thinking. He was saying Jesus would say, get more faithful to the Son of God. You've you got to stop doing those few bad things you're doing. You've got to give some money. You've got to give 10%, 20%, 25%. Got to make a huge donation. Got to start a ministry. Got to get involved in something. And I believe with all my heart that man would have done that. Whatever Jesus asked him that seemed reasonable to him, okay, that's what I'll do. But when Jesus said, sell everything, what did you say? Huh? Everything? That's stunning. Just as stunning as it would be to any of you in this room. If Jesus looked at you and said, you want eternal life? Here's what. Give it all up. Your house, your cars, your family, your job. Your 401k, give it all away. He's stunned by it. And so here's what he does. Look at the last verse in this passage. He was stunned at this demand, and he went away grieving because he had many possessions. Simply say, here's what he does. He just looks at the ledger sheet and says, here's all I got, and here's what Jesus is offering. I wanted that as a backup plan. But I got this, and this is real. I know it's real because I'm seeing it right now. I'm living this. Yeah, can't give up this for that. I wanted it. I don't want it that bad. You follow what I'm saying? Now go with me to one other verse and work through. Look with me to Matthew chapter 13 and verse 44. And here's what it says. And I'm going to read it just a phrase at a time. So just hang with me. Don't jump ahead too much. The kingdom of heaven. Jesus is going to give us a parable. The kingdom of heaven. And he's going to say, here's what it's like. Because he does that a lot in the gospel of Matthew. Now look up and listen. This is really important. You won't get this if you don't, if you don't hear what I'm saying. The kingdom of heaven in the gospel of Matthew it's not talking about a physical kingdom, geographical barriers and limitations and boundaries. He's not talking about that kind of kingdom. 
When he says the kingdom of heaven in the gospel of Matthew or the kingdom of God, you read that as well? He's saying to us, here's the manner in which God rules. Here's how God rules. That's what he's saying to us. Here's how God operates. Here's how God rules. Here's how God reigns. He says, the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure. You like that word? Like a treasure. Jesus told this other man, this, this same man, in the story we just read, you go sell everything and come take up the cross and follow me and you'll have treasure in heaven. So now he talks about treasure. He says, the kingdom of heaven, the way God rules, is like a treasure. You ever wonder what it would be like to find a treasure? Don't you like movies where they're searching for a treasure? I like those guys. Indiana Jones, didn't you all see Indiana Jones 100 years ago when it came out? Didn't you love that movie? I mean, he's searching so hard for the Ark of the Covenant, one of those movies. I mean, he's willing to go through anything, through fire and snakes and near-death experiences to put his life on line because he wants that treasure that no one else has found. Well, that's what treasure is. It's what floats your boat. It's whatever... You prize more than anything else in the world. And Jesus says, the kingdom of God is like a treasure. Then he says, buried in a field. You see that movie, The Pirates of the Caribbean? They're looking for treasure, and it's buried out in the Caribbean, and they're searching for it. Well, this, this treasure is buried in a field. Let me just take a time out and tell you about my little nephew. My nephew, David, my sister's boy, she's got two boys. They're both preachers, Daniel and David. One of them's in Texas at Waco. One of them's in Wichita, Kansas. David's in Wichita, Kansas. He's the younger. When he was always short for his age and just full of energy, wild imagination, brilliant, brilliant kid. And uh, when he was in that five, six, and seven-year-old stage, he went through about three years of living in a fantasy world where he was this character at one time and this character another time. He went through about six characters. I'm not kidding. My wife could tell you. My whole family could tell you this story. And not one word I'm going to tell you is made up. This is all truth, okay? He would stay in character 24 hours a day, seven days a week until he got out of that character. He did it for months on end. He was Clint Eastwood at one time. Got him in some trouble. He used a little profanity one time. His mom about killed him over it. But he became, he became Clint Eastwood. He'd wear the guns. He'd have the hat. He'd talk like him. He'd look like him. He'd put the straw in his mouth like him, right? Yeah. He was Clint Eastwood in his mind. He was a farmer at one time, wore bib overalls, straw hat. He went through a farmer phase. He was a military officer at one time, went through all that deal. He had a bunch of these different characters. One of his characters was a pirate. He had a little patch over his eye, had a pirate's hat. And he just do this. I mean, he, they couldn't get him out of it. He'd go to school. He was a pirate at school. He was just wherever he was, wherever he was, that's how he was, you know. Well, when he was in the pirate phase, my dad lived across the street from my sister. And so my dad just loves, adores this boy because he's so much like my dad. And so uh, my dad would at night draw up these little maps. He'd get out in the yard in the dark, my dad would, and he'd count off so many steps 
to the back of the house, and then he'd turn right and go so many steps. Then he'd come to this tree, and he'd see something about the tree, and he'd go in another direction toward a neighbor's house. And then he would come to a doghouse and turn left there. And then he'd dig a hole about a foot and a half deep, and he'd get a shoebox and put my mama's costume jewelry in that shoebox, and he'd bury it. Then he'd go across the street to my nephew's house, and he'd put a thing on the door like a pirate would expect to find, and he'd come out the next morning, and there'd be a map with hidden treasure in it, the promise of hidden treasure. So my nephew would spend the whole morning or afternoon out there traipsing through these different steps until he'd find that shoebox, and he'd dig holes. He'd miss it sometimes, and he'd dig a hole, and then he'd just leave that and go dig another hole somewhere, right? Until he'd find that shoebox. It was the coolest thing you ever saw. So Jesus says, the way God rules is like this. It's like a treasure that uh, is buried in a field that a man has found. And that really gets intriguing. I mean, he's found this treasure. He spent all this time looking for it, and finally he's found it. And then he says a startling thing and reburied it. What? Who goes looking for a treasure, and once they find it, they rebury it? It's like the Pirates of the Caribbean. They come up with this gold and silver and rings and all this, and they say, okay, we found it, and they throw it back in the ocean. Can't imagine that, right? Or in Raiders of the Lost Ark, that they find the ark and suddenly say, well, we find it. Let's just leave. They don't do that. But that's what Jesus says this guy does. He looks and looks and looks for this treasure, and he finds it. And when he finds it, he reburies it. But wait a second, story's not over. Then, in his joy, he's so tickled, he goes and sells everything he has. Well, that's weird too, isn't it? <laughs> he's found this treasure. He reburies the treasure. Now he says, I need to go home and sell everything I've got. And he goes home, and he gets out the deeds to his house and the deeds to his land. And if he'd had a title to his car in those days, he'd have got his title to the car. And he sells everything he has so that he's liquidated his entire estate. What in the world is he thinking? Well, next verse tells us, and he goes and buys that field. Boy, now I get it. Now I get it. You see, he knows if he takes this treasure and he goes and talks about it, somebody's going to come and say, where'd you find that treasure? Well, it was out here on Highway 9. And well, Wait a second. You don't own any land on Highway 9. That belongs to so-and-so. And so what he does, he knows he wants that field. He sells everything he has so he'll be prepared to pay the ultimate price. And he goes to this man who owns the field and he says, what would you take for your piece of property? And the guy says, I don't know what you got. He says, well, I got this much. He says, that's what I'll sell it for. And he buys this field. It cost him everything. When he's through, he doesn't own a thing except the treasure. But he's so elated over his purchase, it doesn't matter. Because he's found his treasure. He's gotten what he wants. You get that? Do you get that? The Apostle Paul says this in Philippians 3, 8. What is more, 
I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them garbage that I may gain Christ. I'm going to tell you something, folks. A lot of evangelists and preachers and people got this notion of how you come to Jesus, all wrong. We almost act like you're doing God a favor. Would you please come and receive Christ? Well, what do I have to do? Well, just pray this prayer. Okay, I can do that. I'll pray. Would you be baptized? Yeah, I'll be baptized, maybe. And you've got eternal life. And Jesus tells about this man who comes and he's kind of like that. He says, I want eternal life, but I want it on my terms. He walks away sad because he's not willing to pay the price. But here's this guy. Jesus tells this parable. He says, here's how it really is when somebody comes to the kingdom of God and how God expects it to be. It's like a guy who wanders into a field and he finds this treasure. And when he finds it, he's so enthralled by this treasure he so wants what this treasure is that everything else is of no consequence. He doesn't care about anything. He doesn't care about his cars. He doesn't care about his money in the bank. He doesn't care about his house. He doesn't care about it. I want that. I want that above everything else. And so what does he do to get it? It means he has to rid himself of everything else, and he takes his money from that which he's liquidated. He goes and he buys that field because that's all that matters anymore to him. You see, I'm telling you, coming to Christ doesn't do God a favor. It gives you the gift of eternal life. And you should be so enthralled by that that nothing else matters. Just nothing else matters. But that I'll live eternally with God when this is over. That's what's real. This is illusionary. This just is here today, but it may be gone tomorrow. It could be gone before we get out of this service today. But that's what's real. When I was 14 years old, I was in Verena's Heights Baptist Church. My name was on the roll of the church. I was a leader among the youth. But I knew I wasn't right with God. I knew that all along. I knew I wasn't a real believer. I'd prayed a prayer. The preacher led me to pray when I was nine years old. He baptized me, dunked me. But I knew some folk who had a relationship with him, and I knew I didn't have that. And at 14... I sat on the next last row of Greenwich Heights Baptist Church and heard a gospel message, and I knew that God wanted to save me. And I was resistant. Because, you see, I want to tell you, I, I was, I'm unusual. I, I know this about myself. Unusual in this sense. Nothing special about me. But all my life I've known what I wanted to do. All my life. From the time I was eight, nine years old, I had a plan. And that plan was I was going to West Point. My dad was a career soldier, and that's all I ever talked about. Anything about West Point I read, I, I just wanted to go to West Point. I just wanted to be a soldier. I just wanted to be an officer in the Army. That was going to be my life. And so what held me back was this, and I can't explain this, but I just knew, I somehow knew this, that if I ever got truly right with God, He would call me to preach. I just knew that. And I didn't want to do that. This is the last thing I wanted to do. I didn't even particularly like preachers, to be honest with you, even as a kid. 
I thought they were a bunch of sissies. The last thing in the world I wanted to do would be a preacher. And so I can remember sitting right back at the very next last row and just struggling. And all I could think about was, I want this, but I want my life too. I want to fulfill this dream. And I knew I can't have both. I'm either going to take the one or lose the other or lose the one and take the other. And at 14 years of age, I did exactly what that man in the parable did. I sold everything I had. And I took that treasure. I embraced that treasure. Because it, in the moment, was all that mattered. And that's how you come to Jesus. You don't come on your terms. You come on His terms. That's why some of you never had it. Because you've, you've tried to come on your terms. Okay, God, I'll give you this much of my life. If, if I can have it, it won't cost me too much. And it'll cost you everything. Everything. And there's no other way to get it than to give everything. You just got to recognize, I'm going to put all my chips in, in that pot. I'm going to believe that that's the only thing that matters. And that's what I want. Do you want it like that this morning? Have you ever had it? If not, well, I want to tell you, it's the treasure to end all treasures. Would you take it this morning? Would you just receive it this morning? Let's stand and 